Scripture from Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, we're going to read verses 27 to 32. Uh, You can go ahead and stand as you uh, grab your Bible and open that up. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. This is on page 861 if you have one of the black hardcover Bibles. And remember, as we read, uh, we're reading God's Word. After this, he went out, that's Jesus, and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's God's word. You may be seated. We've been talking in this series that we're doing, Christmas Blessing, we've been uh, talking about some practices that try to bring sanity to an otherwise crazy season. We've said that there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of difficulty related to Christmas because of the three F's. There's the financial stress, the, uh, just all the things that Nancy even just mentioned of, of wanting to provide a great Christmas. There's the family stress of all the activities and, and the people you miss and the people that you have to be around that you wish you could miss and all that family stuff. And then, and then there's the, the, the fantasy stress of wanting to provide the perfect thing and the ideal memories and, and all the, the stress that goes with that. And so we've been saying we want to we bring sanity to this Christmas season. We want to do it through some practices, some things that really I hope uh, you'll try out this holiday season and then have become a, a regular part of your life. We call them the blessed practices. That's why we've called the series Christmas Blessing. Each, each letter in the word bless stands for something. And so the B stands for bless, that we are to bless God. We, each of these has a, has a Godward orientation and an other's orientation because we, the greatest command was to love God with everything and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So, so we bless God. We give him thanks for all the goodness. And we praise and we worship him. And we bless others. We, we give notes of encouragement and we do good deeds. And we give tangible time and, and, and gifts in ways that encourage and bless people. The L stands for listen. We talked about this last week, that we listen to God through his word. That There's a lot of things that are important. There's a lot of things that are good. There's one thing that's necessary. It's listening to God. And then that we listen to other people. That one of the best ways we can show love to people is to really actively and empathetically listen to them. Today we're going to talk about eating. Can't wait to get there. That we eat, we feast on God's word, and then we build relationships by eating with others. Next week we'll look at speaking. We speak to God in prayer. One of the best ways you can bring sanity to this season is to spend time speaking to God, telling him your needs, telling him your hopes, telling him uh, just areas where you need help, and then speaking to others, good news, gospel uh, gospel words of encouragement and, and blessing. And then the last S we'll look at just before Christmas, the S of Sabbath. That we rest from striving and good works in the gospel. We rest in grace. And then, therefore, we rest physically and we recreate and we play and we use all that. We, we use our vacation time and we just we, we do those things to rest and to replenish. So that's what we've been looking at in this series. And today, as I said, we're looking at this idea of eating. Now, there's a phrase that we say here at, at Redemption a lot. You've heard it a lot and, and perhaps you could even quote it back to me. It's this phrase. I love it. All of life is all for Jesus. 
All of life is all for Jesus. So we say that a lot, and it kind of it's catchy, and it sort of rolls off the tongue. All of life is all for Jesus. And my question to you this morning as we begin to tackle eating, is that really true? That all of life is all for Jesus? See, I, I think that we oftentimes don't really believe that. We really believe that some things are sacred and some things are secular. Some things are holy, some things are ordinary. Right? Some, sometimes I'll experience it this way. I'll meet someone and they'll, you know, I'm getting to, to just talk with them here at church and they'll accidentally, you know, swear. It's like, oh, I, I did that in God's house. It's like, I, it, this isn't, I mean, this is just, it's plywood. Right? Like, this isn't God's house. I mean, God's everywhere, right? You think God doesn't hear you at home? Right? Or, or, or people say, oh, well, pastor, I, you know, I don't want to say this around you, you know? And it's like, God's, God's everywhere. But, but we don't really believe that. Here's one of the, the ways you see we don't really believe that is how we think about uh, media and music. There's a band that I love called Switchfoot. And uh, Switchfoot is an interesting band because the followers, uh, the, the, the people in the band are followers of Christ. And yet, uh, when, when they're asked, are you a Christian band? No one can quite figure out. Are you Christian? Or are, you, are you a regular rock band? Or like, what are you? Right? And, and so one time, someone asked John Foreman, the lead singer of Switchfoot, they said, are you a Christian band? And here's what he said. Here was his answer. He basically said, I hate that question. And then he said, what is more Christ-like? Feeding the poor? Making furniture? Cleaning bathrooms? Or painting a sunset. He says there's a schism, it's a separation, between the sacred and the secular in all of our modern minds. The view that a pastor is more Christian than a girls' volleyball coach is flawed and heretical. The stance that a worship leader is more spiritual than a janitor is condescending and flawed. He says some of these songs, the songs there, right? Some of these songs are about redemption, others about the sunrise, others about nothing in particular, written simply for the joy of music. None of these songs has been born again. And to that end, there is no such thing as Christian music. No, Christ didn't come and die for my songs. He came for me. You get that? Right, right. There's this song, oh, it's Christian. It was a sinner, and now it trusted Christ, and now... It, no, no, it's just... Right, and I get it's helpful in terms of labels and kind of organizing your iTunes playlist and things like that. But do but, but you get his point? It's, it's, it's all music. Now, there's good music and there's bad music, right? There's, there's, so un, there's Christian music that's awful. There's Christian music that's great. There's secular music that's awful, and there's secular music that's great. And, and the idea here is, is it just reveals, I, I use that just as an example to go, we say all of life is all for Jesus, but we don't really believe it. And so today, I want to push into something that's as ordinary as anything we do. Something that you do maybe more than anything else we ever talk about. Something that some of you are even going to have initially a little bit of a problem with the idea that we're spending a whole sermon talking about eating. Like, let's talk about something that's, that's spiritual. Right there, I got you. Is all of life all for Jesus? It is. So we're going to talk about eating today, and I really kind of want to organize it around these three ideas. One is the goodness of eating, two is Jesus' ministry of eating, and three, our opportunity of eating. The goodness of eating, Jesus' ministry of eating, and our opportunity of eating. The first thing is the goodness of eating. 
I, I wrote this in my notes. I said, eating food is fundamentally good and provides many opportunities to glorify God, but also many temptations to sin. Eating food's a good thing. Here's a, here's a book that I could just really highly recommend, and if I had thought ahead, I would have made sure we had it on the book cart, but I didn't, and so forgive me. But this is a book, if you're looking for a Christmas present, if you know someone in your life that likes Jesus and likes food, you need to get them this book. It's called A Meal with Jesus, A Meal with Jesus by Tim Chester. It's an incredible book. It's short, easy to read. And here's a quote from that book. He says this, at the beginning of the Bible story, the first thing God does for humanity is present us with a menu. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. At the end of the Bible story, God sets before us a perpetual feast. He says God likes doing the catering. He thinks food is a good thing. Think about this just for a moment. God is all-powerful, right? So he could create us to not need food. I mean, the, who says we needed food, right? And then he created us to need food. And then he could have created us to just need one kind of food. Like, like you know, gasoline. Like, just you know, drink some tonic and that's all you need, right? But, but what did God do? God created varieties of food. God created incredible things, all sorts of different flavors, right? You have sour, you have sweet, you have salty, you have some of, what's the other flavor, Matthew? He's always telling me there's another kind of flavor. I don't know what it is, but I don't know. It doesn't matter. But there's all these flavors, right? You have a tongue with all these taste buds that taste all these different things, and you've been made that way by God. It's not a, it's not a fluke. It's not an accident. It's absolutely on purpose. And so food, eating, is a good thing, and yet there are many temptations to sin when it comes to food, isn't there? Isn't it interesting that the very first sin, the fall that Adam and even experience is around food. They saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and they took of it and they ate and that was where they sinned, right? So there's this great opportunity for goodness, this great temptation to sin, right? There's all kinds of sins. I I made a list of just different temptations that, that come related to food. An obvious one is overeating, right? Eating more than you need, more than you should. Uh, On the other hand, there's other kinds of eating disorders where you don't eat enough or you eat and then throw it up so you can eat more. There's overeating, eating disorders. When it comes to how food is made, you have different temptations to sin, right? You could process it with a bunch of chemicals. It's going to increase your profit but make everyone unhealthy. You could do that. You can exploit workers who pick food and raise food and and, and you can do all those kinds of things. There's ingratitude toward food. You could just begin to treat food as, well, I deserve this, and of course I get this, and of course I deserve a delicious meal, and all the ingratitude that could go. There's a temptation toward asceticism on the other side. The idea that it's better if you just don't, don't handle, don't eat, don't touch, don't drink, just don't. You're, you're better off if you just don't do any of that. There's, there's a temptation to view eating as righteousness. I, I eat true foods. I eat clean foods. And therefore, which nothing wrong with any of those things. Those are wonderful. But if that becomes your basis for righteousness and you look down your nose at those who don't, then you're now, you've, you've become a legalist about food. That's a temptation to sin. There's idolizing food, right? And you can idolize food by thinking about it all the time and eating it. You can idolize food by thinking about it all the time and not eating it. So, so it's a good thing, eating is, with many temptations to sin. 
But now here's where I want to spend the bulk of our, of our time together is on this second idea, that Jesus' ministry was filled with eating. Jesus' ministry of eating. There are three passages in the Gospels that describe Jesus' coming. And I'm going to show these two. I put these on the screen. The first two describe why Jesus came, and the last one describes how he came. All right? So here's the first one. Luke 19.10 says this. For the Son of Man, that was the title that Jesus gave himself, fulfilling a prophecy in Daniel. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Why did Jesus come? The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. He was on a rescue mission to save people who were lost, is what he says. The, the second verse that tells us why he came, Mark 10, 45. It says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came to seek and save the lost and give his life as a ransom for many. There's this idea that the scripture talks about that Jesus is on a rescue mission. Because of our sin, we're separated from God. Because we have all idolized the created thing rather than the creator. We've taken and eaten things that, that we go, this is, this is what I really need. And we've separated ourselves from God. And God comes in Jesus Christ, is what we celebrate each Christmas, to, to seek and to save the lost by giving his life as a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. But how did he come? What was his strategy? You go, okay, I'm the son of God. I got to seek and save the lost. I got to give my life as a ransom for many. What am I going to do? Well, there's a lot of different things that Jesus did. But look at this verse in Luke 7, 34. The son of man has come eating and drinking. Three passages talking about the coming of the Son of Man. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, how? What was his strategy? Eating and drinking. One scholar says this about the Gospel of Luke. Robert Kara says, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And it's amazing, I'm indebted in a lot of the stuff we're going to look at today to that book I mentioned, A Meal with Jesus. And it's amazing as you go through it and you really begin to, I mean, just read Luke's gospel and look at all the places that, that somehow address food. We're going to look at a few of them here. There's a lot that Jesus did to seek and save the lost, and he did it by eating and drinking. You know, Jesus' very first miracle related to food and drink. John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding. And at most weddings, the, they would give you the really nice wine on the front end, and then once you were kind of hammered, they would bring out the bad stuff. And Jesus goes to a particular wedding, and they actually run out of wine, which would have been a huge social problem. I mean, this would have been a huge embarrassment to the father of the bride. I mean, just the, that he didn't plan well, that he didn't handle this right. And so Jesus' mother comes to him and says, Jesus, let's see what you can do. And Jesus is reluctant at first, and then he turns water into wine, and not just a little, right? Like, like just a bottle. If you do the math on what it says in John 2, you see that Jesus made over 120 gallons of wine. They come, they take some of it, and they're like, instead of, instead of the, the father of the bride being, you know, being scorned because he ran out and didn't prepare, prepare well, he's praised because of what Jesus did for him, and they come to him and say, most people save the best, do the best wine at the beginning, you save the best for last, and so this man gets the honor that Jesus received because Jesus did it for him. So just a picture of the gospel. You know, most miracles that Jesus does like have this, have this uh, deep spiritual thing, or you go... Well, he's, he's healing the blind. He's, he's giving the sight to the blind. He's raising the dead. He's, 
He's multiplying all these things. What, what happened there? He was just announcing, I'm the king, and I'm here to bring joy. Jesus ate to bring joy to sinners. That's the first thing we see as we look at Jesus' ministry of eating, is Jesus ate to bring joy to sinners. That's in John 2. Now, the rest of what we're going to look at is in the book of Luke. And so I want you to turn there. Hopefully you're already there from where we read earlier. In Luke chapter 5, uh, we see that Jesus ate to extend friendship to sinners. Uh, Jesus came, he said, to seek and save the lost. That's why I'm using the word sinners. As everyone who's a sinner is lost. Jesus came to to extend friendship to sinners, and he did that with eating. So we see here in this passage, Jesus calls Levi. Levi is also known by the name Matthew, and is one of the gospel writers, writes the book of Matthew, and it says in verse 27, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting in a tax booth. Now, I don't know if you'll go to a Christmas party this year and ask someone, hey, what do you do for a living? But if you do, and they respond, I work for the IRS, you very well might be tempted to say, I hate you, and walk away, right? <laughs> and, and, and that's in our day where, you know, I guess theoretically, for the most part, the IRS is supposed to be, like, ethical, theoretically, right? But in this day, it was well known that tax collectors were traitors to the Jewish people. The Jews at this time were being occupied by Rome. And tax collectors were people who sold out their Jewish counterparts and said, I'm going to agree to work for the Roman government. And not only that, they could charge whatever they wanted. So if Rome said, we want 20%, the tax collector would say, I want 50% and keep it. These were hated people. And one of the people that Jesus selects doesn't just tolerate, doesn't just kind of, okay. One of the people that Jesus selects to be his disciple, and then to record one of the accounts of his life is Matthew, Levi. Levi, come, follow me. What does Levi do? Verse 29, Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of other tax collectors, right? This is what happens when you get saved. You invite other people. This is what happened with the guys in Flagstaff, right? They, they come to an encounter with Jesus, and they go, i got to tell friends, right? And that's what happens. A large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table, right? Jesus isn't eating and running. This isn't a pop-in. He's hanging, reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees, now the Pharisees, those are the ones that are set apart. They're the religious leaders. They're the ones that are serious about holiness. They're the ones that are ready to usher in the kingdom of God. And they've got an issue with it. It says the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? It's the same question, by the way, when you read ahead in Luke chapter 15, right before Jesus talks about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son. What launches that is that the Pharisees say, this man eats with sinners and receives tax collectors. He, he, he loves these people. What's wrong with this guy? Isn't Jesus supposed to be spiritual? One commentator said that in Luke's gospel, Jesus got himself killed because of the way he ate. And it wasn't the food he was eating. It was the company he was keeping. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Pharisees, you, you don't even realize you're sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus ate to extend friendship to sinners. Similarly, 
Jesus ate to give salvation to sinners. If you look ahead to the uh, chapter 7, there's this discussion again that Jesus is having with uh, other people, and he says in chapter 7, verse 33, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now now remember this, okay? You don't get accused of being a glutton or a drunkard unless you eat and drink a lot. Right? No one's accusing, you know, Jillian Michaels or any, you know, supermodel on the cover of a magazine of being a glutton or a drunk. So, so Jesus apparently did this enough to be accused of this. I mean, it's, it's actually very interesting when you think about it. And look at what he says in verse 34. A glutton and a drunkard. And then here's the thing that got him killed. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Sinners is just the scum of the earth. I mean, this is the catch-all bucket phrase for those people. And Jesus was friends with them. Just got to pause there for a second and ask, are you a a friend of sinners? Which sinners that don't know Christ, that would kind of be icked out by your faith, call you their friend? For many of us, it's sad to say that no one, or not many, you go, but I'm like Jesus, because I, I don't watch those movies, and I don't drink those things. And I d-. But, but maybe you're not like Jesus because you don't. Okay, listen, there's tension here, right? I mean, there's, like, you can go into worldliness and kind of use all of this as an excuse to sin. And we've been studying Romans over the last few months. Should we go on in sin that grace may abound? And Paul's answer is... By no means, right? So, so I get it. There's tension all in this. And Jesus walks straight into it because he came to seek and save the lost. He came to give salvation to sinners. There's an incredible story that follows this right here. Right after Jesus is, says, I'm a friend of, of, of sinners and tax collectors, there's a story about a banquet that's held and about this woman of the city, a prostitute that comes in. Just imagine that you're at a Christmas party and, and there is... Uh, I don't know, Billy Graham. Billy Graham's seated down, and in walks this girl in a tight leather skirt, four-inch heels, thick eyeshadow, big hair. Woman of the city. She comes in, and she gets out a bottle of lotion, and she begins to rub her fingers through Billy Graham's hair. She takes off his shoes and she begins to massage his feet. What would you be thinking? You'd be thinking what the Pharisees were thinking. When this woman came in and let her hair down, right? And to let your hair down in that day for a woman, that was something you did in intimate moments. That would be the equivalent of a woman taking off her shirt today. That's what this woman does. And these leaders do what you and I would do if we saw that and go, this is pretty uncomfortable Doesn't Jesus know who that is? Doesn't Jesus know what's happening? Are you kidding me? And again, all of this happens where? At a meal. At a feast. 
And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, one person owed a debt of $500,000. The other owed a debt of fifty. The, the lender forgave them both. Who loves the lender more? The one who was forgiven more. And Jesus tells this woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. They respond, the people in their hearts, they're thinking, those who are at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, to give forgiveness to people that the rest of us would go, I don't know. See, we believe, we say, that you can be made right with God by faith alone. That that, that this gospel is for everybody. God could change everybody. Does your table reflect that? Would you be willing to have those, those people in your home? Would you go out to dinner with them? Would you be seen hanging with them? Whoever they are, right? The person at work who's just awful and everybody can't stand them. Are you, are you, do you just resort back to junior high and go, this is the cool kid table, stay away? Jesus didn't do that. Jesus brought joy to sinners. He extended friendship to sinners. He gave salvation to sinners. And he introduced himself to sinners. Look at Luke chapter 9. Uh, this is a meal that is recorded in all four of the uh, gospel accounts in Luke chapter 9. Uh, and it's sandwiched right between some interesting things in Luke's gospel. Uh, in, in Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17, we have the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. That there were 5,000 people out in the wilderness, and they're there, and they've been hearing Jesus teach, and they're hungry. And, and it probably was more than 5,000. That probably just records the men. And, and so there are thousands and thousands of people, and they're there. They're in the wilderness. They're miles away from home. They're miles away from, you know, a McDonald's. They don't have anything nearby. They can't order a pizza. They go, what do we do? And Jesus tells his disciples, hey, you feed them. Just go ahead. You feed them. They say, they say Jesus, we, we, we can't do that. They have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus multiplies them. And everyone eats. And there's 12 baskets left over. One for every disciple. And it's interestingly sandwiched, this story is, between two discussions about who is Jesus. Right in the passage right before this, in Luke 9, verse 7, it's talking about Herod, the Tetrarch, the, one of the governing people. Herod heard all about that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Right, so there's all this discussion. Who is this Jesus guy? After this miracle... Jesus is going to go alone with his disciples. Verse 18, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah. And others say one of the prophets of old has arisen. He says, but who do you say I am? And they say, the Christ of God. How, how do they come up with that answer? Right, everyone's wondering, is it, is it John the Baptist reincarnated? Is it Elijah reincarnated? Is it... Is this one of the pro- is Jesus just a prophet? What is this? And they say he's the Christ. How do they know that? Well, they saw what he did when he fed these people. He introduced himself. Just like Moses was a prophet and, and, and called down manna from heaven so that the people could eat, Jesus himself created that. So Jesus is the true and better Moses. He, he's the real deal. And they go, You're not just Elijah, you're not Moses, you are the Christ. 
How does Jesus reveal himself to his disciples? Food, eating, drinking. How else did Jesus use eating in his ministry? Well, we're going to jump ahead now to Luke chapter 22. We see that Jesus fulfilled the Passover for sinners. And another incredibly important meal here, Jesus fulfilled the Passover for sinners. Now, the Passover was a celebration that Israel uh, did, and they did it every single year, and it commemorated the most significant event in Israel's history. And this was the Exodus, that the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. Moses comes in, Charleston Heston, let my people go, and, and they go, right? And now they're, they're into this promised land. And what delivered them out of that was the Passover, that, that there was a, they would sacrifice their, their best lamb and spread its blood over their doorposts, and the angel of death would pass over them. And, and so the Jews were to commemorate this, to celebrate this every year. Now Jesus, this is right before Jesus is going to be killed, he's actually killed on Passover, not a coincidence, because Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so as he's beginning to celebrate this Passover, just hours before he will become the Passover lamb, it says in Luke 22, verse 14, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Think about that just, just for a second. You hear what he just said? Guys, drink some wine. Because I'm not going to have any until the kingdom of God comes. Which, here, here's what this means. Jesus, right, he, he must have liked wine, right? You don't get accused of being a drunk unless you like wine. And Jesus is saying, guys, I'm going to fast from wine until the kingdom comes. Which means that when the kingdom comes, one of the first things that Jesus is going to do is pop a cork. <laughs> I mean, you got to think he's just like... Here we go, I'm, I'm ready, I'm thirsty, let's do this, come on. I mean, how good does a glass of wine sound, right? Like, right, I mean, how awesome. I just think that's incredible. It says, verse 19, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Now, this is interesting, I meant to mention this back in, in Luke chapter 9, but in Luke 9, when, when Jesus is feeding the 5,000, here's what it says back there. It says, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, that's thanking God. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. So in, in, in Luke 9, with the feeding of the 5,000, you have Jesus taking bread, thanking God, breaking bread, giving it to them. Now notice this. In verse 19 of Luke 22, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. 
There's this custom that Jesus seems to have as it relates to bread. There's a tradition, there's a practice that he has. And he's saying, listen, this Passover meal that has always represented the freedom that you're going to get out of slavery from Egypt, I'm giving new meaning to it because I'm the true Passover lamb. I'm the true Moses. And I'm leading you into a new kind of exodus, a new kind of freedom. So take this bread and remember me, he said. Verse 20, and likewise the cup after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Jesus ate to fulfill the Passover for sinners, to show that he was the true Passover lamb. Moments after this, Jesus is betrayed by one of those disciples, just as he predicted. And he's led away, and he's mocked, and he's flogged. Insults are hurled at him. You saved others, save yourself. He ends up nailed on a cross. He dies. And then three days later, as we celebrate each Easter, he rises. And even though he had predicted this many times, many of his disciples didn't anticipate it. They didn't see it. They didn't know all that it happened. And Jesus, in an amazing story in Luke 24, he resurrects. And then, and, and then it, it, there's this story in Luke 24 about these disciples on the road to Emmaus. And th- these disciples, uh, they're, they're headed to Emmaus. The resurrection's happened. They've been hearing about all this stuff. They've, they've not known kind of what's going on. And they meet this stranger on the road. And they begin to talk, and they walk with this whole way. And, 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 and it's really interesting um, this guy says, this guy that talks to these guys, hey, what are you guys talking about? They're like, are you the only person that doesn't know everything that's happening? And, and they say, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. This is verse 20. How our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and to crucify him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying they'd seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And this stranger that they meet on the road says, how did you miss this? This is everything that the Old Testament's been talking about. And it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, this man interpreted to them all the scriptures. And they keep on walking. And he says, oh, i got to keep going. No, 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 no. Eat with us. We'd love to have you in our home. Eat with us. He says, okay. And in verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed, that's thanked, and broke it and gave it to them. And I love this next verse. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. How did they recognize Jesus? By the way, he took bread and thanked God and broke it and gave it. The the, the practice that he had at mealtime was when they went, whoa, that's him. Then there's another encounter that Jesus has with his disciples, and you read about it starting in verse 36. They were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. (laughs) Whoa, all right. (laughs) Like Jesus just shows 
whoa, you know, I'm going to be a little scared. It says they were startled and frightened, thought they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And they're still like, uh, I don't know. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Guys, really, touch, touch my, my hands, my feet, feel this. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they're like, Jesus, that is you. I mean, what does he do? He raises a little girl from the dead. What's the first thing he tells her? Get her something to eat. And Jesus says, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Jesus ate to prove his resurrection to sinners. From beginning to end, Jesus comes to seek and save the lost, and he does it by eating and drinking. And so eating is a spiritual thing. So I want to close with, with this, is our opportunity of eating. And again, eating provides a lot of opportunities for temptation, but it also is one of these amazing gifts that God has given us, not just to, to eat good food and to drink good wine and to taste these things and to enjoy and to give thanks to God, though we should do that. But, but eating is a strategic opportunity for us just as it was for Jesus. How did Jesus influence these sinners and tax collectors? He did it through eating and drinking with them. See, here's the beauty of eating is eating lowers barriers, doesn't it? I mean, when you have a meeting, there's a huge difference between you have a meeting and you're, and you're sitting there with, you know, your computers and your tablets and your notebooks, and there's a difference when you got a sandwich. It's just a different feel. It lowers barriers. It, it increases relationship. I've been amazed just, just in the last few weeks. Um, we went to, out to dinner with some folks from our gym, and these are people that we've been knowing in a sense, for over a year, as we've been, you know, kind of small talk and little things, you have one meal with them, all of a sudden you feel like, man, I re we really know each other, because there's a beauty in relationships. So think about this. Here's our opportunity. You're going to eat approximately 21 meals this week. If you're trying to have higher metabolism, maybe it'll be like 35, right? Five small ones a day or something. You got even more opportunity, okay? So 21 meals a week. What, what if... What if two or three of those you intentionally ate with other people for the purpose of building a relationship with them? Maybe in some of your instances, maybe it means you need to eat together as a family. There's a lot I, I don't remember about my childhood, but I remember that we ate dinner every night as a family. My wife and all her siblings are together. Their funniest and their best memories are around the table eating. Maybe you need to eat together as a family. Maybe that would be one of the most spiritual things you could do for your family. Just commit to eat together. Maybe you have an opportunity to schedule a lunch or to go to coffee or to, to have some moment where you're eating and drinking with someone else. Maybe, maybe that could be your strategic mission opportunity. Maybe there are some people that you need to have over to your home. It's amazing when you have someone over to your house and you have them for dinner and you have this great time and relationships are built and you talk about things and you laugh, right? And then you leave. And as, you're, as the, they're leaving, what do they inevitably say to you? They say, this was such a great time. We really must do it again. How about if we have you over next time? What if eating 
became this strategic way to, to enjoy your life and to speak good news into people's life. And it just became this cascading pinball machine effect of people eating together and blessing each other and laughing and being pointed to Christ. Here's another quote from Tim Chester's book. He says this, we, may, we can make community and mission sound like specialized activities that belong to experts. Some people have a vested interest in doing this because it makes them feel extraordinary. Or we focus on dynamic personalities who can hold an audience and lead a movement. Some push mission beyond the scope of ordinary Christians. Maybe you've felt like that. When you hear someone talking about evangelism and mission and reach the world and all that stuff, you go, oh, that must be for the other people. This is hopeful. Chester says, but the Son of Man came eating and drinking. It's not complicated. True, it's not always easy. It involves people invading your space or going to places where you don't feel comfortable. Right, they're going to spill something on your carpet. They're going to make a mess of something sometimes. But it's not complicated. If you share a meal three or four times a week and you have a passion for Jesus, then you will be building up the Christian community and reaching out in mission. What an opportunity. And to host people, you don't have to like, my, uh, one of the nicest things I ever said to my sister-in-law, we went to her house and I said, I feel like I'm, I feel like your house, I, like, I, like you live in Pinterest. <laughs> right? And she was like, I said, I, I just feel like I walked into Pinterest. And she's like, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> and, and listen, some of you, you, your house doesn't look like that. Most of us, it doesn't look like that. And, and, and you hesitate to go, well, we, I don't know if I have people over because my house doesn't look perfect and I don't have centerpieces and I haven't, you know. So? What if just a couple times a week you went out to eat or you, what if after this service you grab someone that you haven't met and go, let's go to breakfast? By now you've got to be hungry. I mean, as much as we're talking about this. I think God would really use it. So here's how we're going to finish. We're going to finish our, our uh, time together here before the band comes back up, and we're going to eat and drink. Now, now, listen to this. Isn't it interesting that the guy who was accused of being a, a glutton and a drunk, when he gave his people something to remember him by, chose bread and wine or juice? Isn't that amazing? He could have done anything, but that's what he picked. And I think it's subversive, and it's saying, this is how I saved you. I saved you by coming and invading your world, by being a friend to sinners like you. I saved you by becoming the Passover lamb, by pouring my blood out so that the angel of death would pass over you. It's beautiful. It's subversive. It's incredible. And so we want to uh, conclude this message by inviting those of you who are followers of Christ to eat and drink together. The ushers in a moment are going to pass the elements, and there's the bread representing Jesus' body, just as we read, and the cup representing his blood, and we're going to hold these things together, and, and together, after everyone is served, we'll, we'll eat. Now listen, for those of you who are, who are not yet followers of Christ, again, we're so glad you're here, but here's the thing. This is a symbol of taking Jesus. And if you have not yet taken Jesus into your life as, as your Lord, as your Master, as your Savior, then rather than taking the symbols of Jesus... We would rather you, you let those items pass and instead take Jesus. Take the real thing. Make this a moment of prayer where you go, God, I'm, I'm seeing Jesus in a new way. And I see that he's come to save and to forgive me. Give me grace.
But don't, don't, don't take these elements. These elements would at this point be a symbol of something you don't yet trust. So trust the real thing. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward and to serve you. And once that, please hold the elements. And once everyone is served, I'll come back and we'll take these together, okay? Please come forward.